Hello and welcome to Forward. Our guest today is Lucas Bonato Miguel, the founder and CEO of Elemento AI. Headquartered in San Francisco, California, Elemento provides an industry-leading MLOps platform that allows data science professionals to accelerate and automate their machine learning life cycles. Elemento products and services are used by industry leaders, including Americanas, Shoptime, and Submarino. Lucas is a software engineer by training and has experience working in a wide range of industries, including finance, retail, and crypto. He built several companies before founding Elemento in 2021. In this episode, we talk about the challenges organizations experience when building deep learning systems, how implementing effective MLOps leads to a step change in organizational abilities to deploy AI, the advantages of the modular approach and interoperability, and why open sourcing the code is a win-win for a vendor and a client. We also talk about Elemento's quite distinct set of company values. How having a design client from day one affected the product's roadmap? What differentiates highly efficient teams? And what worries Lucas about the recent rapid progress of generative AI systems? Lucas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a brief overview of the MLOps discipline. When it became important and why? And what is the current state? Right. So it has origins from the need for companies use AI in the corporate environment, right? And even it was, and it still is a very academic phase, most of the processes and the tools, they were not ready for the, the needs that you have when you're doing in the development in the co corporate world. So it's a brand new field. It's probably three to four year max like area that people are talking about. And the audience from Uber, big tech companies, those are the ones, you know, kind of setting the standards. Uber had Michelangelo, which was the first platform that they created a lot of content and shared a lot of their ideas with the community. And so I think that helped. And in terms of the current state, from what I observed, most companies are still trying to learn how to do it. Uh, they're trying to implement these internally. And many of them, they are basically trying to reproduce what the big tech firms did a few years ago. Uh, so they're trying to build their own internal MLOps platforms and systems. And yeah, that's, that's challenge. It's not small stack to build. Gotcha. And there are multiple challenges in deploying machine learning in organizations these days, multiple sources of data, extensive computational needs, right. issues with reproducibility. So what do you see as the most pressing challenges for the MLOps teams now in those organizations and how these challenges are currently being addressed? Right. I think the, the, the most pressing is, is definitely related with data and specifically for ML, you have different needs and, and, and different ways to access the data throughout the development cycle. So, you know, when they're doing training, you need to access data on a specific format, right? Like batch or mini batches. But when you're going to deploy the model, you need data at fast data, right? Like transactional data uh, for doing the inferences. So one thing that we notice is that many teams, they are good at solving the first part, you know, accessing the data in batches with data lakers, big data solutions. 
Uh, that's kind of like a mature in the market. But when it comes to deploying to production and, and, you know, like at inference time, many of them are still struggling. And the first try is always trying to use the, the same data search you have for training. And that doesn't work. Then you learn that doesn't work and you need to basically deploy a whole new database, NoSQL maybe, to, to have speed. So yeah, definitely the data aspect of things. And, and that's like everything I just said, it's just like the engineering part of how you access data. That is other problems, right? Like, but you need to avoid bias. You need to ensure reproducibility. So yeah, uh, data is, is definitely the most complex part here. The biggest bottleneck. Yes. The biggest bottleneck. For okay. And what is your general view on improving this state of MLOps and which specific parts Elemena is focused on? Right. So we have a, an approach that is what we call end-to-end, zero-to-one. We believe that for the MLOps to work seamless within a company, you need to cover all aspects of the development flow, right? Like since the early days of the project, when the data scientists and the ML engineers, they are still exploring, understanding the problem and exploring the data. Right. And then from there, they migrate to the next phases, which like, okay, so I found a potential model that I can prove some hypothesis here. Now I need to make that into a training application. I need to see if this model that I have will generalize with the rest of the data. So to a point that, okay, so I prove everything and that requires many iterations. You need to, you know, keep going back and changing things and now need to deploy that to maybe the mobile team of my company to use the inferences, right? Because that's what matters at the end. It's that like some product or some team in the company will be able to use that product you created. So we support like all these steps up to the point that you're in production. And then we help you also to uh, maintain it running. And we understand that at least for our solution, the persona that we create the solutions for is usually the data scientist. So I personally have been studying the since my master's of how we could improve the user experience for data scientists when they're developing models. So yeah, for us, it has a lot to do with, first, let's assume scientists are not engineers, right? And then let's abstract away the engineering aspects of the problem so they can focus on what they actually need to focus. So you do cover the whole scope of tasks from the exploration to maintenance in production. Right. And is there any common thread, any common approach that you use across all parts? And how this approach is maybe different than what else is available in the market? Right. So we try to stick with as much open source patterns as possible. And we don't reinvent the wheel when it's possible. So we understand that people, they already are familiar with some stacks of technology. And we want to allow them to continue using that, right? Like we don't want to try to evangelize people or advocate for something there will be like a barrier for sure. So we try to be, you know, as more modular and interoperable as possible. I think that's one of the things that differentiate us from the other solution. Yeah. The modularity and interoperability is definitely important until the field standardizes around some set of technologies, which will happen eventually, but it's not the time right now. And there is a proliferation of different technologies that don't necessarily talk to each other well. So that's a clear issue. And I see how it can benefit the teams, especially if the teams already got used to some parts of their stack and they want to continue using it. So what do organizations generally misunderstand or underappreciate about building their MLOps? What are common mistakes and how do they hurt the company's ability to build deployable models? 
Right. That's a really good question. So first of all, it's a hard thing to understand how to solve right now, mainly because even it's too new and there are the lack of standards, like you said, right? So the companies are trying to explore and like experimenting a lot. So what we see is that a common mistake companies are doing is that they are trying to build full platforms uh, in-house, right? And unless, in my opinion, at least, unless you're you are a technology company that you are, you know, like intending to sell this as a service eventually, that doesn't make sense. And just because it, like, it's the same thing that imagine you're a design company and you know, like Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator, these, these tools, they didn't exist yet. And you will try to build your own Photoshop in-house. That's probably not a good idea. So, so yeah, I understand why companies are doing though, because the solutions in the market, like they're just maybe for the past year or so, we start seeing solutions that are a little bit more mature. But yeah, so that's probably the most common mistake I've been seeing out there. Got you. And that makes sense uh, in a sense that eventually, initially they had to do it themselves because there was nothing in the market. But at some point, we all know in every type of technology, we move from in-house to off-the-shelf and benefit a lot from that transition. There is also a question of development team culture in implementing MLOps, and it is critical. So I wonder how, what's your view on how the culture should change? Right, that's a good point. So the main inflection point that usually I experience, at least on, on you know, the teams that I worked with even before Elemento, is the, given the fact that for developing machine learning and AI, usually don't have people with a lot of engineering uh, experience they tend to do not know the best practices or sometimes they even know, but they have so much other things to do, like dealing with the data, as I was saying before, that ended up like skipping some parts of the, the process. So lack of automation, lack of scripting things, and then you end up repeating that is a problem if you have only one team, but if you have multiple teams doing data science at the same time, it scales a lot. And, and it ends up like resulting in slowness for the company, right? And also less stability, right? Because if you don't have these best practices, as you make progress, things start getting really hard to keep running and maintaining. Yeah. And making sure your organization combines best of both worlds, data science and engineering to build the properly running right. and robust machine learning system. Right. Okay, makes sense. And let's talk about some examples of how Alimena is being used in real life by your customers. Right, so our vision, like what we want to do is to be a full end-to-end -end AI platform. And, and that includes the MLOps, which is the main product we have out there right now. And that product helps companies that already have data science teams, right? They are already doing AI and they're already doing machine learning, but they want to improve, right? They want to do sort of, that term sometimes is probably not the best one, but it's at least the, the one that I can make this best analogy. They, they want to do like their production lines, right? Like of models. And they want to have like this thing going on smoothly. So we help online retailers. We work with a company in Latin America called Americanas. They are the one of the largest e-commerce there. And yeah, for they, they have more than 100 data scientists. So we basically put our stack in their case to run in-house on-premises, right? Because they had some privacy concerns and things like that. However, most recently we have been deploying for customers that are running uh, fully on our SaaS. And they're still like taking care of their data within their, like their clouds. Because at the end of the day, almost everyone is already keeping their data in the cloud. And as long as we have seamless integration uh, from Elemental, the MLOps part, 
with like whatever cloud they're using. It's more like they giving access to our platform to use a specific part of the data on like during training and, and during inference. So they keep control of their data. So yeah, we have these two examples on how we deploy. And in those two examples, how would you say the operations of the engineering organization of those companies changed after you deployed them? Right. What do they tell you about how it's improved right. their life for them? So on the first example, you know, when you're running on-premises, it's actually a little bit of more complexity for the company because if you're running on-premises, Elemento provides the support and we even, you know, depending on the setup, we can maintain and, and monitor the cluster remotely for you. But if you're running on-premises, you need to have like an ML engineer or you have a team of people maintaining our cluster and make sure the teams are being able to use and have no issues. If you're running on the SaaS, then we manage it for you, right? It's 100% fully managed. You just use, uh, it's just like a tool that you know, uh, whenever you need it, it'll be available there and you can just use. In terms of the benefits that I think work for both cases is your data and uh, your models. I, I think it ends up like being, you know, like better governance of these both things, the data for machine learning and the models, and also time to market, being able to, truly include AI on the core of the business, right? Because yeah, what we see also like before companies, they adopt ML ops, most of them, they are sometimes using machine learning or AI, but they are using it. They're not extracting all the benefits of it. So in many cases we see, you know, the companies are basically getting the results of the models to generate insights for the business. So they have the teams creating these models that will end up as being like notebooks or business presentations. And it has value, right? Because it, you know, supports the decision makers on, on like doing some, some sort of action based on like the, what the data is predicting or is telling them. But what we see with MLOps is that the companies, they change the level, right? Because now you can actually include these models within your applications, right? Or within your processes on the day-to-day. So yeah, I would say that's probably the main benefit. Works on both scenarios. Moving from data analysis to operational AI, real-time operational yes. AI in deployment. Yes. That's definitely an important step forward. It's, it's like a step change in the level of uh, adoption of AI within organization. Right. And also all companies who implement MLOps do report usually reduced times to market and increased efficiencies, less time wasted, less effort wasted on issues or on things that you need to do over because you I didn't do them properly in the first time. Or the another important thing, especially important in some well-regulated industries, is reproducibility and how you can make sure that whatever you do is well-documented, doc is version-controlled, and you can always reproduce those things. So I imagine that thing is also one of the important for your customers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was putting that within the governance, but yeah, you're right. Okay. We have a case of a client that it's a health tech and so they develop AI product, you know, it's FDA approved. They, they recently got the FDA approval. So, you know, other than all the concerns you just shared, they also need to ensure that for every new release, like the criteria of the FDA, they're very strict. So, you know, you need to make sure there's no bias when you're like uploading a new version of your model and without MLOps, it's really, really hard to, to keep track and control of all these different aspects. It is hard and it's to the point of being impossible, I think. Yeah. Uh, if the model is at a large enough size and, and data that they use is amount of data is significant enough too. Okay, let's talk about the origins of Elemento. 
how the company was started. I know you worked on Marvin open source AI system before. So how did that work evolve into Elemental? Right. So the short story, uh, it's actually, I, I've been a software engineer my whole career, usually worked on, on backend software engineering. And uh, when I was doing the masters, that's when I first got in contact with machine learning. I decided to research on the intersection of AI and, and distributed systems. And at that time, like that was 2014, I think, I already see that there was a problem emerging, which was you have big data. And by that time, companies were realizing that, wow, like this is a thing and, and more and more data being generated. And the data scientists, they would need to write these applications to process the big data to do training, right? But they, they don't learn distributed computing because they come from different fields usually, right? Like it's from physics, from statistics. So like some of them come from computer science, but even the ones from computer science, they tend to focus more on the algorithm side of things, right? So on the masters, I propose like a domain specific language for abstracting away the complexities that turned into a research project with a university in Brazil. And from there, I started working on B2W, which is a retailer in Brazil. We did Marvin there initially to solve what now we understand is MLOps, but at that time, no one was even talking about MLOps. We open sourced it after like we were running this internally in the company and Marvin uh, became a Apache project is in the incubator. It has its own small community around it. But then I personally started receiving, you know, some approaches from friends working companies and also on conversations, I would see that two things that actually caught my attention. One was the, that scenario that I just described to you that, you know, I see many companies trying to build their own machine learning platforms and given I had experience with Marvin, I knew that, wow, that's probably not a good idea. It's, it's not an easy problem. Like we managed to make progress on Marvin because we had a lot of people helping us. Right? And so that was one. The second was a few friends that were executives. They were telling from different contexts, they were telling me that the investors on their startups and scale-ups, they were pressuring the C-levels to adopt AI. Like that, that's a priority. You guys need to look into it. And so I kind of like, yeah, like now I understand why, you know, like companies are trying to do their own machine learning platforms because there's no solution in the market and, and they're being pressured by the stakeholders. So yeah, that's when we decided creating Elemental. The first client we had was that online retailer I was telling you, Americanas. And when we started the project with them, we barely had a product. And, and the agreement was that we would develop the product like as we were understanding their problem at the moment. So that was actually a thing that helped us to make progress because instead of the traditional way of starting a company where like you start building a product and then once you have a prototype, you start testing in the market and collect user feedback. Like we had the users already waiting for it on that company and the problem to study there from the beginning. So it was just natural that once we solved for them, we turned that into a SaaS product and uh, here we are today. Do you think it helped in terms of having that feedback from customer so early on versus if you had to try to develop the product without the first design customer? Yeah, no, I, I think that that was critical. Yeah, not only we could talk to them even before deciding, you know, what we would prioritize, but as we were doing our MVP, we would be, you know, weekly getting their feedback, like and releasing new pieces of like usability for them. And that definitely shaped the product. Some hypotheses we had before we would quickly realize that, uh, okay, so, you know, like that maybe it's not that important or, you know, maybe this is not the way we thought. So that helped to speed up the process for sure. What are some of the important changes that you've made uh, to the product idea or concept or right. implementation because of that feedback? So that, that, that is one that I can remember that I personally had a strong 
belief on a specific technology. So there is a, an open source project called uh, Onyx, and it stands for Open Neural Network Exchange. And this project has a, a very interesting proposal, right? They want to create this specification, kind of like a, this single pattern that manages to allow every machine learning framework to interoperate, right? Because they kind of reduce the problem to, all right, so at the end, independent of the internal details, like it's a method for doing uh, the fit or the training, right? And a method for doing the predict or the inference, right? So by doing that, they allow teams to work on their own stacks, but once they're finished it, you can translate your result of their work to Onyx. And then, you know, like whatever environment, like Elemental supports Onyx that runs Onyx will run that thing. I was like thinking, wow, that, that's the solution uh, perfect here. Like Elemental will be, you know, like fully based on Onyx as like as the execution environment. And as we were testing with the users, we would see that like the users, they would not even understand what Onyx was doing. And, you know, like they would say, why do I need to translate my model to this thing? So yeah, that ended up like making us change the product. And, you know, like we support your deployment on TensorFlow, on PyTorch, or, and also on Onyx. We recommend you go through Onyx. And there's a reason why we recommend also, it's because given Onyx did, do this kind of like optimization, we could develop one of our servers that we did very optimized to work with Onyx and we tested and we load tested. So well, that's like the thing we believe is what we recommend the most. That is this overhead that's small to translate your model. But yeah, whereas when you're using, for example, the TensorFlow serving solution, it's from what I see, it, it would be, you know, like the less performant than Onyx. So yeah, there are those trade-offs. But at the end of the day, the lesson learned for us is people are resistant to change. And if, you know, if they're using already TensorFlow uh, serve, for example, and if it's working for their context, right, because not everyone needs something that, you know, like it's super performant or, you know, it's super fast. So it's fine, right? Like as long as it works and, and solves the problem. So yeah, that, that's probably one that I can remember. As long as it doesn't get in the way of achieving the final goal right. uh, of delivering the model in, productive, in production environment, it can yes. run on either TensorFlow or Onyx. And uh, this is where your concept of modularity comes from and interoperability, right? Yeah, mainly from that, but also like sometimes some people ask, oh, wait, so you guys, because they see we have an SDK, so they want to, to know, oh, so are you guys a machine learning framework you develop? And, and that's another thing that, you know, from the beginning now, we're like TensorFlow, PyTorch, you know, Scikit-Learn, they, they're well-established and they're doing like a great job, right? So we, we don't need to do that part. So it's just, we focus a lot on containerization and using these things and then allowing the, the users on Elemento to just use their stack the way it is. And yeah, as long as we can put that into a container, it will work on the platform. Gotcha. In terms of your team, how did you recruit your first members and what kind of people you looked for? Right. So I started with a few friends. We started with uh, six people. And I had worked with them before on other companies and other projects. They were not all from the machine learning space. They were like really good engineering. Some of them were from machine learning. At the end of the day, you know, like the one of the skills that I would call it a soft skill that I mostly look on people that I work with is the ability to kind of leave the comfort zone and, you know, learn something new and, and like learn on the go, right? Uh, I think that's really important. And, and all the guys that started with me, they, they definitely shared that. Uh, that quality. And from there, like at some point we start hiding and, and, you know, like some people left and some people join. So we're still a small company, right? Like we, we never fundraised. We started bootstrapped and, and basically uh, reinvesting and, and growing the company, I would say organically, like since then. 
but yeah, like as a startup, especially here in, in, in the Bay Area, it's it's hard to hire people with ex like a lot of experience, especially as a non-funded startup. Right? So the workaround I found is like during the hiring process, I usually win in from the first meeting until, you know, like the end. I'm personally like a very technical person. So like I try to, to assess the abilities of the person at the beginning. And, and from my experience, you know, as long as the person is able to learn on the go, as I said, even if they don't have experience, but, you know, like if you catch that they are quick thinkers and, and they go after uh, solving the problem, that's, you know, like they're good problem solvers, that, that's all that matters. In terms of uh, bringing those, those people, who, you said they were your friends, so you knew them. Going beyond the friends, you're going mostly after maybe people with less experience, but with a raw brain power to right. learn things quickly. And I agree, this is usually it's the only way, and it's a much better way to get a new team member for the early stage company, because sometimes you want to get someone with more experience, but then the trick is someone with a very well-established resume probably has so many options that the ones that you will see from that cohort will maybe be the ones who didn't get those other options. And so you're left with so somewhat adverse selection versus if you're dealing with less established uh, people, uh, you don't have that adverse selection. Uh, you at least see the whole group Right. That's a good point. Yeah. And I think that's like the beauty of startups, right? Like they, they manage to, uh, of course, we, we look for people that fits our culture, right? Like that, that's something we can get from the like first steps of the process. And yeah, as long as like fitting the culture and, and the way we think and work, then we assess for these other things we just discussed. And the last thing I look and, and which is important, but it's the last thing I look is, you know, like, oh, what kind of technologies and stacks you're working with? There are a few positions we have that, you know, oh, for that position, we like, yeah, we must have someone that have worked with this two before, but in most of the cases, like it, it's not. And uh, I think that part of it is because uh, like on technology, especially in a field like AI, that's like changing so quickly, even if you're like an expert on some technology today, you know, like maybe in two months from now or a month from now, like that thing is out of date and you need to learn something new. So. Yeah, that's a very good point. In such fast-moving fields, you need to be a quick learner. Otherwise, all your well-established skills will be irrelevant in a very yeah. short time. Uh, speaking of company culture, uh, you've a quite distinct set of company values. Solidarity, transparency, share to advance, scientific method, and code is law. Why this set? Right. So I can go, you know, like one by one, actually, to make it easier to explain. Yeah. So start with solidarity. And it has to do a little bit of the, the thing we say. We understand that from the beginning in our team, we had different levels of like uh, seniorship in terms of technology, right? So it's common, especially on these deep tech areas and like areas that require a lot of expertise to see people that they kind of like think their ego ends up like growing too much, right? Like that's a common thing on, on, on academia. I experienced that and, and also in the industry. So we wanted to make sure, you know, like solidarity was part of our culture to kind of remind people that like no one knows everything. And even if you're like super expert, so let's help each other and uh, let's grow together. Right? So that's it. Transparency is something that for us is very important. So I personally like the kind of open doors culture, right? Where 
First, we don't have a lot of hierarchy concepts within the company. It's way more similar to a decentralized with a little bit of centralization. So, you know, like we make sure we are organized and we kind of like push each other to do more. But if we're doing something that, you know, like is founded on, you know, not being based on, on top-down decisions, uh, transparency is really important, right? So as transparent as possible with the team and then they are between each other as well and with me. And that helped us in, in you know, like, several situations to sometimes even like revert someone that I could see that if the company didn't have this transparency culture uh, and I worked for a company that didn't have before, that person would leave and, and, you know, like some problem would be generated for the company. So it's good that we kind of like can talk with each other and work throughout the issues, right? Shared advance, I think, has to do with the open source aspect of things, right? So our stack is, you know, like I, I would say it's safe to assume our stack is 95%. We never measure, but at least 95% open source based. And it's either like open source projects that we incorporated and, you know, we're providing a better experience on top of them or things that we build internally and we open source, right? So we, yeah, especially for a field that is very complex and has a lot to be built. I think that, you know, like as more things that are open, more people will work together and we get better solutions. Do you expect it to stay that way, to continue to release a lot of your work in open source? Yeah, as I, I believe so. I believe that uh, kind of the main IP that we bring to the table and that, of course, as a company that is for profit, we need to protect is the ability to provide the integrated experience, right? Like the, but the individual parts of the system and, you know, like if you're an advanced user and you want to run that part by yourself, like we believe it's better if we open source because then like it has not only the this aspect of having more people contributing to it right but also for us as a, a deep tech company it's also a way to maybe make new customers in the future one company that i uh, like it to kind of like use as a role model for elemental from the beginning is gitlab i see their you know like their full journey when like the companies i was working for they were using it like open source version so when i also like was on some leadership decisions when i was making uh, the decision to another companies I work for. So we're using this thing open source. It's helping us tremendously, but you know, like it's giving us a little bit of headache to maintain that. Like I would look for someone providing a managed version of it. So that's the the kind of model we're following in Elemental as well. We want to make sure that the clients that are with us because bring to the table this facility and like we remove any issues and make a create a seamless experience for them. Yeah, and the experience shows that most customers are gladly paying for that additional maintenance and uh, ease of mind that they get coming with yeah. it and less headache that they, because they have so many more things to do within the organization rather than worry about uh, maintaining the open source product to save right. an insignificant amount of yes, money. Exactly. exactly. That's the, when I was on the other side of the table, that was, you know, like I would say, okay, so I need like two people to maintain this part of our stack, right? And, and that cost me is like this much. Oh, there's someone like providing the service, you know, managed service for like a tenth of the price. So definitely worth it. Okay, let's move on to the other two. Scientific methods. So let's to ensure we are a data-driven company and that like, so one thing that is true is to you and it's started changing a little bit now, but we started as a 100% technical team, right? From the beginning. And no one had sales experience. No one, you know, like was a business person in any experience before. I'm saying that it's changing now because, yeah, we we recently hired a senior people to do business development with us. 
But even even though it's a senior people that was an engineer and was a data scientist in the, in the past, and so he's relatively technical as well. But when we're testing a product and when we're like doing like a go-to-market strategy, we try to raise hypotheses. And then, you know, like we basically do a empirical experiment with the market and we make conclusions. And from there, we start prioritizing and get things more into real products. So, yeah. And the code is law part. That's a, it's a very technical aspect of our culture, for sure, like the name. So first of all, we, with the other values we have, you can see that we have a kind of like space that's open for debate, right? And technical debate usually can go, you know, south, right? Depending, you know, the people involved. So the code law is more to, you know, like avoid these things. So whenever someone is having like a technical debate that is to argue at the end of the day, let's just make sure that we do whatever will work. And is also, there's a difference between doing the thing that's perfect and, and, you know, like the thing that works. So keeping things practical. Yes, exactly. And of course, keeping sure that whenever we create a technical data to move faster, we document it and we constantly have like meetings to review those dabs and include them on the prioritizations when the right time to fix them comes. Gotcha. Different companies come to their values in different ways. Curious, what was your process to come up with this set of values? So we started day one without it. And I think that was by the third or fourth month of the company running that we managed to come up with this list. So it was, yeah, basically created on, you know, like based on the values of the people that were working at the beginning and that uh, created the company. Did you have a, some sort of a retreat where you go sit around the campfire and discuss those or how did the process go? Or was it a notion document or something? No, it's actually neither of them. So one of the fun facts is that we are a company created during COVID. So uh, we're fully distributed and remote from the beginning. So yeah, we never had a, the opportunity to do the campfire thing. <laughs> we also, you know, like have people on different geographies. It's mainly Brazil in the US, more people here in the US at the moment. But it was, yeah, like uh, Hangouts, Google Meets kind of thing. And, and sometimes we do a, a kind of meeting. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the culture came out of this, this specific type of meeting, which we call the Vibe Check. It's something I learned with a friend on another project. And yeah, it's basically, you know, like usually on Fridays, we just hang out together, like sometimes with peers and, and we ask each other how, how was the week. And then we go beyond just also the, like the project and the professional, like strictly professional things. So yeah, it was like more like a not formal at all. You worked on multiple different teams. So I'm curious in your view, what separates highly functional teams from mediocre ones? Right. So I think that at least the, the times I felt mediocre when like working in the early days of my career, they all had something in common, which was the team was seeing one person as kind of like this, the one running the show and they would be waiting for that person to kind of like tell them what to do, right? So I think the highly functional teams that I see, they usually learn how to like work together without necessarily having, you know, like someone telling them what to do. And they all, they all feel owners of the product or the project or, you know, whatever is the end goal of what they're doing, they all feel owners of it. So I think that's a, the, I think the key differentiator I see, like if everyone's feeling honored and, you know, it's giving their best. Yeah, like definitely agile, like every, you know, highly functional team I work is either, you know, like following Scrum or some type of agile methodology. And, and these things actually are also coming from the culture that these methods bring to the companies. The interesting thing is that the machine learning side of things, because, you know, like agile methodologies, they started in the web development space, you know, like web software engineering. So the machine learning and data science teams, they, I see some of them, you know, like actually trying to implement this, but 
there are a few challenges on like you can do like the buy the book scrum for example at least i didn't see anyone doing it, so you need to do some adaptations but overall the combination of processes that encourage openness collaboration and ownership the mindsets of the people on the team yeah. and the behavior of the leader of the team if they all three encourage ownership and collaboration instead of just waiting for the boss to tell what to do right, right this right. is your recipe for high performing team yeah it's hard at the beginning because tend to like most people they would tend to want to control the situation right and that's not bad like in some scenarios you know like someone actually need to control the situation right but it can't be the rule i think that like the day-to-day you need to encourage people to like feel that they have the responsibility and like if they don't do that no one will do it so once you reach that point and what i see is that you know as more people come to the team they kind of like sense that the beginning that oh that's the that's how the game works and they kind of like uh, get into it so but of course yeah you need to ensure uh, that things are moving and you know like that you're getting the results you're expecting then whoever is in charge needs to be most focus on tracking the progress in terms of, you know, like, oh, are the customers being happy? You know, like, are we reaching the milestones that we have on our roadmap? If not, is there like a reason? And if it's a lesson learned, did we make sure we did a retrospective and kind of like share that moment so we don't repeat? At the end of the day, no one knows exactly what needs to be built, right? Like that's the, the assumption. So we just need to make sure we have a process in place that we can quickly adapt. And, and I like to see these things a lot like a reinforcement learning algorithm, right? Like you, you need to like be constantly measuring the, the error and, and eventually you have like a function that is, is you know, good enough for feeding the test you're doing. Right. Our issue is that our environment changes by minute. So our algorithm, even though we develop it, needs to adjust itself over and over. So the focus is less on an final algorithm that will be produced by that reinforcement learning system, but rather on right. the system itself. So the system continues to... Right. It's the policy. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. Switching to you personally, I'm curious how becoming a CEO or founder of a company changed you and what was the most challenging part of that transition? Right. So honestly, I don't think it changed much. One thing that... So my first... My first experience in my whole life when I, I was like 17 years old, I think I founded my company, right? Of course, it was like a small thing, but I went through a different route from what most people, at least that I know, would do, which is like start with internship and then, you know, like you grow in your career. So I had that experience as my first professional experience. So, and I think that helped me a lot on the next jobs because eventually I realized, okay, so I don't, I, I don't have the, you know, like the marketing, the administrative skills, like I just have the technical skills. So let me go and work for companies first to learn some stuff. But on every team and every company that I would join, like I would always have this this feeling of uh, ownership very strong with me because, you know, like I will, okay, so if I believe in this vision and like the, the vibes here, then I've, I, I make sure, you know, it's kind of like my adopted baby <laughs> and the brainchild as, as people said. So yeah, so I always had that. So it didn't change me a lot, but definitely there are some changes in terms of because Elemental is the is definitely like the kind of the most relevant and diverse that I did so far. So the changes are more, you know, like towards responsibility and understanding that my actions, they need to serve as not only a good example, but they need to serve other people as well. So I keep constantly trying to create ways to give back to society somehow. Like one problem that keeps, you know, like me awake sometimes and that I've been even like discussed some potential solutions and it's something that I believe will be more pressing as 
the time comes is like I experienced personally, like the ability that AI has to actually uh, reduce jobs, right? Because it optimizes the businesses, right? So the issue that I say, I keep thinking and, and like I even, you know, like I'm working on a, a potential solution is if all companies, they are just trying to advance from the technology perspective and they're trying to push AI to the businesses like we are doing, and they are not concerned with the other side of things, then there will be like an imbalance and, and, and a collapse, right? So to avoid that, I believe that, you know, like some mechanism need to be uh, created and, and put in place that will help, you know, things grow in a sustainable way. And that's definitely true. And this is a very big issue on many minds, I think, these days on the many minds and a very small group of people who really understand the potential of AI. So it's going to become a bigger problem. Do you expect it to be something more pressing in a short term? Or do you still think we have some time to figure it out before it's too late? I personally expect it will be quicker than we thought. I didn't have that opinion like a year ago, but I think that the progress, especially the progress we did as, as a species on these generative uh, AI and, you know, like this, you know, Dolly, GPT-3s and, and so on, they kind of like uh, opened my eyes to, wow, like this will happen quickly than we thought because uh, at the current stage, we're still trying to find the uh, practical and, and business applications and day-to-day -day applications of these things, but there are many already. And, and I think that the progress now towards that direction will help businesses to, you know, like use AI what I think contributes the most there, it's not only the fact that these models that are generalists, they, by definition, they can be used by more use case, is the fact that given they are all pre-trained, they also serve for companies that not necessarily have all the data pipelines and, you know, like all those things figured out. They can start from somewhere, right? And then they can fine tune and they can, you know, make that more specific to their business. So I think that will speed up a lot eventually. Honestly, I don't have like a bad uh, view of the future. I, I think things will go towards, you know, like at the end of the day, if you think about it, what most of the AI systems they will be doing is working on repetitive tasks or tasks that currently do. And, and maybe people are not even happy doing that, right? But there is one aspect of things is that even if people are not like fully happy and, and fully present doing those things, their brains learn to adapt and they actually like that and gives them like a sense of purpose and that they are contributing to something. So I think it goes beyond just like the financial aspect of it, like how people will make money. I think it's more towards, you know, like how people will feel that they are doing accomplishments. And I think for the money side of things and financial side of things, like we'll figure it out soon. Because at the end of the day, the businesses are running smoothly and, and cheaper, right? So it's just like more, where is this profits going? Are they fully going to the business owners or we figure out a way to get part of this optimization on costs and give back to these people who are being impacted by it? Usually, I think in market environments, profits are being distributed one way or another between the customers and the shareholders. And the more competitive the environment, the less shareholders will eventually get. Right. So we've gone through multiple waves of technology implementation within businesses. And all those waves led to proliferation of new products, of better services. And in terms of the corporate profits, when they grow, it's usually not because of technology, it's because of modes, be those modes, regulation modes, or some other anti-competitive behavior. Uh, one way or another, it instructs or it defines the margins for the corporations. So that's why I agree with you that it's, it looks like it's less of an issue on the economic side of things. And in terms of the fulfillment side and how people feel if they have a job or not having a job, 
I have this mental model. Think about a company that deployed AI to the degree that it fully operates on autopilot. It just produces goods for you. Okay, so you can treat it as a tree in jungle that produces fruit for you. Now imagine a group of hunter-gatherers, our ancestors, who wander into jungle. And it's an abundant jungle. There is a lot of different food there, a lot of water. It all runs on autopilot. It's all powered by the energy of sun. They settle there, and there is more food than enough for all of them to consume. So no worries about any shortages. No shelter is needed, it's warm, and so on. Those situations happened in the past, for sure. So these societies survived and thrived, although they didn't have much of a regular work to do. So maybe we should also consider the idea that the concept of work, how artificial it is versus how natural it is. Right, right. That's a very interesting perspective. I never thought about that. But yeah, that's exactly the best analogy uh, that you could make. And and at the end, people do basically start working towards other things and, and things that will probably make us progress even more, you know, so which because that's what happened before. So, yeah, it's a good point. Okay. For our final question, let's talk about the long-term goals for Lemana. What do you envision for the company in the future? Right. So what the main problem we realized we were solving is we, we, we want to speed up AI adoption to our businesses, right? And starts with ML ops because to create our final solution, we also need ML ops, right? Like we, you know, it's kind of like the foundations, the infrastructure. But I don't think that every small and medium business at the end will need or you use, sorry, ML ops. They may need, but they will not use that actually. I am a solution. And I think that the reason is because we can't expect that every small and medium business, they will have a data scientist or, you know, like a machine learning person available to them. So I like the, the marketplace model, right? And we're working towards uh, something like that. And uh, one model that I believe there were a few attempts in the past, there was algorithmia, I think is the first one that I remember would be, you know, a place where people would publish like algorithms and, and sell them as a service. And then there are some new ones, like for example, Hugging Face, where it's, you know, more towards the AI space. So we, we want to do something along these lines, but we want to do something more focused on AI and business and basically bridge this gap of talent that the businesses, uh, you know, especially the small and medium ones have, or, you know, like we increasingly have as they need to adopt AI through this marketplace. So that's like the, the full vision we have. And then that's what we're working on for the future. And yeah, I believe that also the same way we've been doing things in sort of a decentralized way. I don't think LMN will be the company developing all these models. We definitely need to develop some at the beginning and we have developed a few already, but it's more like, you know, we will be the platform to like the ML experts, you know, come and monetize on top of their models and their uh, cognitive function, helping companies that need these solutions at the end. There is definitely no need for everyone to build their own models. And building a model is can be so compute intensive. So yeah. it's not only not a good idea, it's also quite wasteful right. for everyone to do that. So it makes perfect sense eventually have uh, one consolidated hub where you can get any model you need and some easy-to-use environment to fine-tune it and right. to your specific needs, uh, deploy, uh, maintain, and update it with the new versions of that model as it arrives. Got you. Sounds great, Lucas. Thank you so much for coming to the show. 
Awesome. Thanks for having me, Artem. To everyone listening, please sign up for Limeno and check it out. You should also follow Lucas on LinkedIn and sign up for their newsletter. The links will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening.